This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to episode 40 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, coming to you from the formerly Lenape lands known as New York City. Today's guest is Robert Fantina, a board member at World Beyond War and the author of books including Propaganda, Lies, and False Flags, How the U.S. Justifies Its Wars, which has an introduction by Cindy Sheehan, and a new book, Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir, which I've been reading. Here's what Zafar Bangash, director of the Institute for Contemporary Islamic Thought, says about this book. Compelling and meticulously researched, Robert Fantina's latest book, Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir, takes readers through the chamber of horrors called Palestine and Kashmir. This book is a must-read for all those striving for justice and peace to understand what ails our troubled world. So hello, Robert. Hello, how are you? Great, it's good to have you here. Let's jump right in. Why is the term settler colonialism important for people to know? And why do these terms apply to both Palestine and Kashmir? That the people there are suffering horribly. Their, their traditions, their laws, their customs, their religious beliefs are all no longer their own. They're no longer free to, to move about uh, without restriction. They are uh, in mortal danger in every, every moment of their lives. They're reduced to a, a state of being recognized as human beings only, but not with any rights. They can be killed at any time. They can be arrested at any time without charge. Uh, again, killed without without any reason whatsoever, uh, without and with complete impunity for those who are committing these crimes. So, people need to know that settler colonialism means the the end of uh, one nation in the way that the people in that nation live, the way they practice their religion, the way they uh, they they go about their daily lives. It is all all uh, violated through settler colonialism. One thing your book does that's really unique is is put Palestine and Kashmir together, sort of on a level playing field. I want to understand a little more about settler colonialism as one aspect of colonialism, or like I suppose colonialism has has millennia of history. Yes, um, is settler colonialism a subset of colonialism? Is it a different thing? You know, how does it? I'm I'm curious why you felt this word was important enough to be in the title of your book. Yes, there are, uh, the colonial projects have been going on, as you said, for, for ages. Uh, when we think about uh, Canada, where I live, uh, settlers moved in and colonized the land, same with the United States and, and many, many other countries in the world. But colonialism can also involve things the United States tends to do, setting up puppet governments in another country and making that country adhere to U.S. demands. So the people still have rights in the country, uh, which are usually curtailed, but they don't have foreign people, uh, people from, from the United States, for example, coming in, living there, taking over their businesses, their schools, their hospitals, and everything. That happens sometimes, but in, in a different form of colonialism, without settler colonialism, it's uh, mainly control of the government by, by a foreign government. Now, in terms of Palestine and Kashmir, in Palestine, we know, and I think most people know, that Israel has been uh, the settler colonizing nation for, for decades and decades. Uh, they, in the West Bank in Jerusalem, they destroy houses to make, they destroy Palestinian homes to make room to build uh, housing that only, only Israelis can live in. Uh, right. In uh, Gaza, where Gaza is still considered um, colonized because it is uh, it is blockaded by land, sea, and air by Israel. Israel periodically bombs it. The people cannot leave the country. They cannot enter the country. No one can enter the country under, except under extreme circumstances. Sometimes uh, some people from charitable organizations are able to get in. Leaving is very, very difficult. So, and in the West Bank, there are uh, numerous checkpoints that are manned that people are arbitrarily denied entrance or given entrance. There's there's no rhyme or reason to it. They wait hours and hours to get to markets, employment, school, and everything, just for no reason whatsoever. The, the soldiers just 
just close the the um, checkpoints and tell the people you have to wait till we open it. That that's all there is to it. So that's known very much, I think, in Palestine. Maybe not that degree, but people have a general idea. But in Kashmir, people don't recognize or are not aware that uh, Kashmir has been disputed between India and Pakistan since about 1948. Uh, India has uh, occupied it for much of that time. The occupation increased greatly in uh, August of 2019, where yes. the Indian government removed a certain portions of its constitution that granted limited autonomy to the people of Kashmir. Kashmir is now the most military occupied place in the world. Oh, wow. Uh, people, people are not safe in their homes or anywhere. Uh, it's a terrible situation. Uh, Indians are who were previously forbidden from moving into and buying property in Kashmir are now flooding into it, changing the demogra demographic makeup of the nation of Kashmir completely. Wow. Well, I think you are right that, at least in my perspective, as as a person in the United States of America, I am more aware of the human crimes in Palestine and Gaza, um, West Bank of Gaza, than I am of Kashmir. And that is actually one reason, Bob, when I heard about your book, I'm like, oh, finally, there's somebody, you know, I know personally, as and I have known you for a while on the World Beyond War board, who I can talk to about this, because I've heard little tiny bits of information about Kashmir. And what your book reveals that the two, the two crises, the two, you know, the, the two cases of settler colonialism have a lot in common and that that helps us understand both what's happening in Palestine and what's happening in Kashmir. And I think that that's your book's sort of primary principle, isn't it? To, to put these two together. It is. As you mentioned, the crimes that are being perpetrated on the people of Kashmir are not as well known as those being perpetrated on the Palestinians. Not to say the Palestinians are getting the attention from the international community that they deserve, but at least there is more knowledge about them. But we seldom see anything about the horrific crimes that are being committed against the people of Kashmir by the Indian government. And a main reason that I wrote the book was to uh, publicize those crimes and make people more aware of them uh, so that they can begin to get the same kinds of uh, attention that the Palestinians are getting. Again, not that the Palestinians are getting what they deserve at all, but at least there is an awareness and a knowledge of it, but that seems to be completely lacking in terms of Kashmir. This is an international podcast. This is a global podcast. We, we you know, I, I do always check my stats and I'm really glad that people listen to this podcast all over the world. Is that is what you said true only in our hemisphere? You're in Canada. I'm in the United States. You know, for instance, in China, in Russia, in Afghanistan, in Africa, do uh, is it the same that they are more aware of Palestine and less aware of Kashmir, or or is that equation different in different parts of the world? It uh, it's slightly different in some parts of the world, but generally speaking, uh, Kashmir is ignored. It's seen as an internal problem, uh, an internal Indian problem, which it isn't at all. Uh, India has said that that's what it is; that they have it under control. That is simply a, a province in, in revolt, if, if you might say that. And it does not receive the same attention uh, really anywhere in the world uh, that the Palestinian situation does. Uh, Pakistan, probably the exception to that, simply because uh, the, the, when the United Nations was partitioning that part of the world, they said that they guaranteed that Kashmir would be able to vote on whether or not to become part of India or right. Pakistan. Both countries want it. Uh, and the fact that India has basically said it's ours and we don't care what the people of Kashmir say or what international law says is a problem uh, for Pakistan. So for there sure. is publicity there uh, and, and knowledge there. But throughout much of the world, it's it's basically pretty much ignored. And the, the change you talked about involving Pakistan, is that what happened in 2019? Is yes. That well, yes, okay. in 2019, that was when there was still a thought that someday the Kashmiris would be able to vote on whether to join India or Pakistan. Uh, it should have been done decades ago, but it wasn't. 
And in August of 2019, Indy said, that's not going to happen. And here we're going to get into, um, we, we will talk about the leadership of Modi. I, I am not claiming to be an expert at all when I say this. One reason I'm talking to you is to help me be more of an expert. I've seen Modi's leadership as very concerning. He's been called the India version of Trump um, in that he brazenly, brazenly, you know, promotes supremacy of one ethnic group over another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, where, where that might have been a, a hidden feature of a government or an establishment to, to boldly and, and proudly say, yes, we are supremacists. The, the question there is Hindu supremacism. I'd, Bob, I'd love to tell you the background. I mentioned this a little to you before we did this episode, probably because I'm a software developer. I have many Indian friends and, and mm-hmm. m- more of them probably are Hindu than Muslim because I'm through my life have been very interested in India, very interested in the Hindu religion, very interested in the legacy of Gandhi. And I've read mm-hmm. many books about Gandhi. So I know exactly what you're talking about when you talk about the partition of India. This was the moment that if you see the movie, Gandhi is the most tragic part of the movie where millions of people millions of Hindus and Muslims were killed as India and Pakistan both gained independence from the United Kingdom. And there was a a war, a -hmm. civil war, right? I mean, I think it's correct to describe it as a civil war. Absolutely. Um, And a lot of that was in the northern region, the region that borders um, China, I believe, and Afghanistan. And even back to the 1940s, the scale of this horror, the amount that the millions of people killed is also unknown to the world. Mm -hmm. Um, All of that is before I tell you the story of when I found myself working in jobs where every day um, many of my coworkers were from India because that is a fact in the software world. Mm -hmm. About 10 years ago, I first heard of Modi and it was a friend of mine. And I, you know, he is, I still consider him a friend. I'm not going to name him, but I was a little disturbed by him. I asked him to describe what's going on in India. And I found out he's quite a Hindu supremacist. Um, And when I found out about the involvement of, uh, you know, and I'm I'm going to say these names, I'm going to admit my ignorance of what these names are, but BJP and RSS are these sort of, we we in America might call them right-wing parties. Um, And when he told me about these parties, I said, wait a minute, these are the people who killed Gandhi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they, they mm-hmm. back right. in the 19, like, I'm, and I said to my friend, wait, you're, you're supporting the party that took credit for killing Gandhi? Like, I thought, I thought you were a peaceful person. I'm sort of laying out my very Americanized version mm-hmm. of what I know from reading maybe five books and watching the movie Gandhi five times, you know. <laughs> um, but can you put some of the pieces together of the legacy of England's, United Kingdom's colonialism in India, the partition of India, and, and the Kashmir problem? Because this, goes, this does go way back to that. Um, having heard my sort of simplistic mm-hmm. explanation, could you give a better explanation? And, and uh, your, your, your questions are very valid. At the time of the partition, India is mainly Hindu. Pakistan is mainly Muslim. Kashmir is mainly Muslim. But there was the idea that those previous entities that were within the new Indian borders, part of India, those that were on the border, such as Pakistan, would have a choice. Now, it would make sense that Kashmir would want to join Pakistan, become part of Pakistan, because of them both being mainly Muslim nations. That was supposed to have happened decades ago. A plebiscite was supposed to have been held uh, doing that. We can go back to the, the partitioning of the former British Empire and talk about all of the injustices that were perpetrated by that. But I want to get into a little bit about Modi. And as you mentioned, yes, his yes. the idea of uh, the Hindu supremacy. Uh, Modi personally has a long and and bloody and ugly history of discrimination and slaughter uh, of Muslims. His government has said clearly that for Muslims to have equal rights in India, they must reject Islam and become Hindu. Otherwise, they don't even have the rights of second-class citizens. And the spokespeople Mm -hmm. from India have said that. They have no rights whatsoever. Incredible. There's, there's, I know a, a gentleman who's from Palestine. He's currently studying in India and 
getting at him leaving the Gaza Strip was quite challenging. And that's probably another topic. But he's there and he's been there for a couple of years. And lately, well, the area he's in was was pretty safe from Muslims. But lately, he's seeing more and more hostility uh, toward towards Islam in general and toward Muslims specifically. This is something that Modi encourages and uh, is, you mentioned that he's kind of like Trump. And the parties that you mentioned, PGB and so on, are kind of right wing, would be considered right wing. They are the extremist right wing. They're, they're, they're worse equivalently than MAGA Republicans in, in the United States because they have more power and they are able to, to actually implement some of the policies that the right wing in the United States can only talk about. They are able to ostracize, arrest, kill uh, Muslims with complete impunity. They're able to take over uh, a, a Muslim nation with impunity. So this is this is was all the stage for this was all set in 1947, 1948, when the British Empire was was divided. Uh, it's been horrible for the people of Kashmir all that time. But Mark, in the last uh, three years, it has gotten exponentially worse for them. Wow! And I think it's important that people are aware of that. Yes, it is. The history, the uh, the fact that India is mainly a Hindu nation, uh, Kashmir mainly a Muslim nation. There's, there's going to be some some tension there anyway, but with Hindu supremacy and that attitude being uh, permeating the Indian government, it's only going to get worse for the people of Kashmir when it's already horrifically terrible. What explains this descent into, you know, hatred? I don't mean back to 1947. Right. I mean, in our, you know, in our recent history. It's such a good question because we see it in so many places. We see it with white supremacy in the United States. We see it with uh, Israeli supremacy in uh, Israel and Palestine. Yes. And we see it, of course, in uh, Hindu supremacy in uh, uh, India and Kashmir. What explains it is something that I think uh, can't really be answered. Why does one person think that because their belief is is their own, all other beliefs are not only artificial, but the people who hold those beliefs are somehow less than they are? Yes, yeah. it's, it, it's beyond me. We're all you know. We all breathe the same way. We bleed the same way. We all want the same thing. We all want our families to be safe. We want to raise our children in safety and see them become educated, whether we're Christian or Hindu or Jewish or Muslim. These things are the commonalities. There are different ethnic... So I, I'm descendant of white Europeans. Uh, someone else is descendant of uh, Arabs or, or whatever it is. Those things are, of course, we know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, are not, yeah. uh, not important. So answer your question, I don't know. I don't know why people come to believe that they, because of their ethnicity or their religious beliefs, are somehow better than others. It's, it's a question that I think hasn't been answered through the ages. I mean, I, we have a lot to talk about, but and I didn't even mean to get to go so deeply into this. But I, I have to say, my my answer to that is certainly that human beings are able to get along much better than the um, the government systems in which they live, mm -hmm. and that the answer is that hatred comes from the top because it is strategic, it is profitable, it allows weapon sales, it allows abuse of you know, human beings for profit and that, um, you know, as, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I am Jewish. I have just recently, we're recording this in the, in September, 2022. I just recently spent seven hours watching a very painful Ken Burns documentary called U.S. and the Holocaust, which mm -hmm. is something I've probably read, you know, 50 books about, and then I know all about, but it brought back all the horror to me. Mm -hmm. And what I came from from that was was that the Holocaust did not happen. And this is something I've said before on this podcast. It did not happen because individual human beings hated Jews. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. happened because there were strategic gains to be made by abusing Jews on a mass scale. 
by governments. And I, I would like to absolve human beings of some guilt and say that governments are much more guilty and we are imprisoned by these governments. Yeah, that, and that, that's what you hate. Yeah, and those points are entirely valid because we look at uh, organizations in, in Israel, Jewish-based organizations that support the Palestinians. Um, in the United States and Canada, Jewish Voices for Peace. Now, in, in Israel, again, for example, there, uh, there was a woman whose husband was a, a general in the military, very high-ranking general. She was part of a group that monitored checkpoints for abuses, for abuses committed by Israel of the Palestinians. She was, she was fostering justice for the Palestinians. Uh, we see people around the world in May of 2021 when uh, Israel was bombing Gaza again. There were mm -hmm. demonstrations around the world in favor, in support of the people of, of Palestine. Uh, their governments, as you so correctly mentioned, weren't, weren't supporting them. They were saying, oh, Israel has a right to defend itself. But the people were saying, no, this isn't defense. This is, this is offensive. This is genocide. And right. they were saying that. But as you move up into government circles, again, as you mentioned, the, uh, the United States, for example, does a lot of business and trading with India and with Israel. Uh, they rely on them for uh, certain uh, financial and strategic, what they would call benefits, uh, and for so sure. they will not they will not condemn their the atrocities that they commit because they are committing them against lesser countries, and by lesser I mean in terms of strategic importance. So Palestine has no importance to the United States is the United the U.S.'s geopolitical goals. So the Palestinians don't matter. Yes. Same with Kashmir and the Kashmiris. I mean, Pakistan is also in that category of a partner with the United States. Mm -hmm. Is Pakistan actively representing the human beings in Kashmir? You uh, know, to what extent does Pakistan use its leverage? Because they are also a trading partner with the United States and with other... Mm -hmm. And you know, the Pakistani government does not want to jeopardize those relationships. Mm, they, really? they object certainly uh, completely to... Uh, the Indian Indian behavior in in Pakistan, but bottom line seems to be always profit and profit or power. The United States is oh. both these other countries it's power. Uh, also, India and Pakistan are both nuclear uh, nuclear armed countries, yes, and they are. so things need to be handled very delicately there because we hear talk sometimes more recently in terms of Russian and Ukraine of a limited nuclear war. There's really no such thing. Once a nuclear right. bomb drops, there's global catastrophe. So the the fact that Pakistan is treading lightly uh, is, I think, wrong because they mm -hmm. they need to be stronger about that. But it has to be tempered by the fact that uh, this can't escalate into a, a nuclear nuclear war. But the United Nations should take action because India agreed to the plebiscite saying back in 1948, that yes, we will grant the people of Kashmir the opportunity of voting for uh, either joining us or joining Pakistan. And now they're saying, well, it basically says it's not going to happen. But as I mentioned before, so many Hindus are moving into uh, Pakistan and changing the, the demographic makeup of the country. So once the Hindus right. outnumber the Muslims, and they'll say, well, the people of Kashmir voted uh, to join India. But they've changed Kashmir so that it's it's not yes. valid. So that brings us back to exactly what settler colonialism is. It's the mm -hmm. engineering of populations in an area to mm -hmm. affect the political, uh, you know, profiteering in that area. To, exactly. To put it mm -hmm. bluntly. Mm -hmm. There's so much here, Bob, and I'm really glad we're talking about this. Let's um, go into some of the specific topics in your book. So your book is arranged topic by topic, and within each topic, you break down what is the situation in Palestine, what is the situation in Kashmir. So I'm just going to pick a couple at random that, that to me, are especially resonant, like police, police abuse or police um, relations with the people. How would you contrast, and I'm sort of asking you something that you wrote in your book mm -hmm. for the benefit of listeners, um, how would you summarize like the differences or the contrasts and the similarities in terms of police behavior 
in Palestine and Kashmir? The, the similarities are astounding. In both countries, the uh, colonizing nation, that's Israel and India, are able to arrest, let's just use uh, Palestine as an as a example to start. The Israeli police and the IDF, uh, so-called Israel Defense Forces, can arrest without charge any man, woman, or child anywhere in Palestine. They uh, break into homes at night. They'll ransack the homes, uh, arrest all of the males over the age of 12 um, with, with no charge, take them out. No one knows where they're going and hold them indefinitely. Uh, they can hold them. They can hold them for six months. That's, that's the limit. However, that can be extended again and again and again. There's no limit to how many extensions that can have. So someone can be arrested, not know what they're charged with, and held for years. And this happens frequently. There are many people in Israeli prisons that have been there for years, with no charge. Uh, never charged. Never yeah. charged. Also, it's uh, against international law for an occupying power to arrest someone in the occupied nation and transport them to a jail in outside of their country so so this this is a crime now in india the same thing is true soldiers can come into a home at any time of day arrest someone walking down the street arrest them without charge uh imprison them uh, deprive them of contact with family or with legal services and hold them indefinitely continuing extending that that period of time so that while there's a limit to it i think it's i think in um india it's it's a year but that can be extended again and again and again. Also, the they, children throwing rocks are shot and killed. Peaceful demonstrators are shot and killed. Uh, no one is, is held accountable. We can look at the uh, the recent assassination of uh, Shireen Abu Akel, the journalist. She had been a journalist for twenty years. Yes. She had uh, she was clearly marked as as a member of the press. She had on her on her bulletproof vest and on her helmet, and she was shot below the ear. No one is taking any responsible for that. The uh, Israeli government has said the soldier who shot her will not be held accountable for anything. So this is the sort of thing that happens. Uh, no one is is held accountable for the crimes against against people. People going to school, to work, to work on their farms, whatever it might be, can be arrested uh, in both countries, held without charge uh, indefinitely. So basically... Uh, uh hostile police state for the minorities and certainly hits home that this is what many people would like in our countries, especially my country as well. Um, But we are nowhere near at that level. I also want to mention, you said they can do this, but I think the more relevant thing is that they do do this. On a a regular, nightly basis in in, uh, Palestine and the same in Kashmir. This is done. Yeah, I should, thank you for clarifying that. This is done on a regular basis. The people live in in terror of what's going to happen. Uh, imagine someone breaking into your home in the middle of the night, ransacking it, dragging the father, any ch- any male children over the age of eighteen, or I'm sorry, over the age of twelve, dragging them out into the street, taking them. You don't know where they're going. You don't know when you'll see them again. If you'll see them again, this is a common occurrence in both countries. Yes. Uh, you know, I got to, again, bring it back to that. It was a moving experience for me to spend seven hours this week, you know, in the last few days watching this series that brought back so much about the Holocaust. This mm-hmm. is exactly what Nazi Germany did to the Jews. Yes. So, you know, in the case of Israel, of course, I'm not saying anything new here, mm-hmm. but how how horrifying um, to be guilty of, of abusing minorities in this way for for any reason. For any reason, it is absolutely just so disturbing. Um, you know, Bob, I was going to ask you, I've known you for more than five years because this is my fifth anniversary with World Beyond War, actually. Oh, congratulations. I, I, and I bet you don't know this, but I know this, but it was five years ago this month that I met you. I went to the oh. um, World Beyond War conference in Washington, D.C. Oh, that's where we met you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You were one of the first people, faces I remember. So you've been with World Beyond War longer than I have. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool. It's a funny thing, Bob. I don't actually know much about you, though. Um, no. So here on the podcast, is my, and, and you and I have worked together. But mm-hmm. um, I, So I'm asking you questions that I have no idea what the answer is. Who are you and why are you a peace activist? 
Okay, good questions. Uh, I was born in and raised, spent most of my life in New Jersey. So okay. uh, I was, that's right, I grew up in a very uh, conservative... What part of New Jersey? Uh, the town is Bernardsville. It's near Princeton. Not, okay. not far from Princeton. Princeton, okay. Morristown, kind of between those two. Uh, and I grew up in a very conservative Republican household. My parents, the day they died, were, were conservative Republicans. They weren't crazy about Trump, but they voted for him. Um, hmm. So that that's the atmosphere I grew up in, uh, very upper middle class. But uh, I started seeing things and recognized that people didn't all live like I lived, that people were struggling to just accomplish or gain the things that I took completely for granted. It, housing, for one. Uh, owning a car, these ba things that I've considered just basic. Everyone has these things. Well, no, everyone doesn't have these things. Then um, I think my, perhaps my, uh, I had an awakening when George Bush was president. I, I, of course, from early ages voted, did not follow my family's voting patterns. But then right. with the, the onset of the uh, Iraqi war, when Bush was saying that there were these you know, weapons of mass destruction that Iraq had and the, uh, the rest of the world was saying, there's no evidence of this. And yet uh, there was an invasion and we all know, we all know that. And it was so unjust and so uh, so blatantly wrong. Then I remember hearing as a child on the news, Israel bulldozed this many more Palestinian homes. And, and as a child, you don't really pay much attention, but I started wondering about that and did a little research, met some people in Palestine and was just horrified at the injustice that was going on. So these were the things that led me to uh, where I, I am today, to being a, a peace activist. When George Bush was elected in reelected in two thousand four, is when I decided I needed to leave the country. Now, uh, Canada is not utopia; it has an ugly, ugly history of colonialism that is still occurring. But I, my goal right. at that time in two thousand four was I didn't want my tax dollars going to killing Iraqis, so uh, I yes. wound up moving with my family to to Canada uh, and started writing about the things that I, the injustices that I, that I saw and was aware of. One of the things that uh, I heard about during the Iraq war was soldiers deserting. And that seemed to me to be a very brave and courageous stand to take. And I grew up uh, attending private school and learning that uh, in the United States, Benedict Arnold was a horrible traitor and, and traitors are, are cowards and they're treasonous and all this other stuff. So one of the first books I wrote was on uh, desertion from the U.S. military because I, I studied the reasons why people deserted from the time of the American Revolution through the Iraq War. And their, their reasons for deserting are entirely valid. They were courageous stands that risked their lives and they are people to be admired and respected. Yes. And yes. so this, this was a, a these things were game changers for me. So you are actually an expatriate mm -hmm. um, for ethical reasons. I, yes. I admire that so much. Bob. Thank you. I do. Um, <laughs> and you, you were able to move with your family. I assume that means, I mean, I have dreamed of being an expatriate. Mm -hmm. I also don't want to support the United States war machine. I think we are a bad influence around the world. Oh, um, the worst. My kids are, are adults and I can't get all three of them to leave with me. <laughs> um, I'm not going to leave my kids behind. That's, yeah. that's why I'm not an expatriate. My, my um, son was about 12, it, so he didn't have any choice. But uh, he's, <laughs> nice, he's nice. very happy. He, he, lives in, uh, he lives in Vancouver now and He's married with a, a child of his own. I'm married to Canadian, wow. so they're they're very happy. I I really admire that. In fact, if we ever do an episode on on being an expatriate, you and I have another mutual friend named Leah Bolger, who was yes. the um, president of World Beyond War, who made the very brave decision to go down to Ecuador mm -hmm. for the same reason. That must have been an incredible decision to make, though. Well, I mean, how it, hard was it? It, it? it was. I have. Uh, my mother was from Newfoundland, uh, so okay, I had some, so you have some roots. Um, and also, unlike Leah, I didn't have to learn a new language. Culture is mm. basically the same. It wasn't a, a huge adjustment at all for for any of us. So, uh, people, I think of of immigrants who come from uh, who are fleeing violence in in Syria or Yemen or Afghanistan and trying to reach Europe 
uh, European countries are trying to reach uh, North America, the dangerous journeys they have to make, then they have to uh, navigate a new language, new customs, uh, hostility by by the governments that they're trying to to become a member of. So for me, it was almost like moving across the street. Uh, for Leah, probably a little more difficult, but for millions of people around the world, it's a huge, huge challenge. Yeah. I, I should mention also another way, what, what I have done to mollify myself is I, I really stopped working in the rat race and maximizing my salary because I'm like, if I can make a little less money, then I'll be paying less taxes. I don't need to be such a greedy person. And, you know, <laughs> so as a software developer, I, I started saying I'm going to at least reduce my tax contribution. But also having a good income allows you to do things with that money that you couldn't necessarily do without it. I mentioned the friend who was from Palestine and is now in India studying. He's young. He's like 26, 27. He wouldn't have been able to get out of Palestine without my financial support. Oh, yeah. right. So right. that's something. That's huge. Yeah. That's huge. So, uh, and even uh, there are other people who are suffering because, often because of U.S. imperialism, uh, individuals who I'm in a position to provide some support to who who wouldn't otherwise have it. And also in, in Canada, I don't have to pay U.S. taxes. I, I file, but my income is not such that I have to pay there and in Canada. My perception is that when you make more money and you're working hard to make the money, you mollify your, yourself for the suffering you're doing in your job by spending the money on stupid things. So for me, it was just a matter of I'll live a simpler life. I mm -hmm. will only work on projects that help the world. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. I, I got rid of my car. I, Good for you, yeah. I take Uber, but you know, it's like, anyway, I'd love to ask you, Bob, what is your, what is your driving ethical philosophy that made you break away from what your parents probably tried to raise you to believe? Because I'm sure... You know, mm -hmm. and anybody who, who grows up in the conservative parts of New Jersey, I know that part of New Jersey well, you're sort of persuaded to conform to that sort of worldview. Mm -hmm. What is the worldview that you have come to and how did you come to it? What is your ethical philosophy? Well, the, the worldview I grew up with, as you mentioned, was, was well, I was in a bubble, very upper middle class mm -hmm. community. Uh, the people I knew were in that, that same Basically, we're in that same socioeconomic status, and uh, we attended private schools, and and uh, our parents got new cars every year. So, you know, this, this sort of thing, and that was to me normal. And then I remember, it was in I was in high school. There was a young man moved in, and very poor. And my mother said, "Oh, it's this family; they need some help. So let's give them some clothes and this sort of thing." And, and I thought that was really nice, and some that need to be done. But I continued to benefit from the the white privilege that I that I have. But then started seeing when I went out to work, uh, started seeing that a lot of people did not have this. And they were just they were good people. They were the same as me. They just happened to have been born in a different circumstance. Why should I have so much more than them just because of if you call it an accident of birth? Um, mm -hmm. And then that kind of expanded to seeing people really suffering. Uh, people in the United States and in, in inner cities, uh, as we know today, schools in inner cities often don't have have heat in the winter, uh, broken windows. They don't have supplies. They they can't drink the water in the water fountains. This sort of thing. That's right. That's right. Uh, the people who are who are very rich, and I wasn't in that category certainly. They have everything, and their people have next to nothing, and that is that is just wrong. That is just simply yes. wrong. So. My overarching, I guess, philosophy, and I haven't really thought about it in those terms, is that everyone needs to be to have some basics. I don't mind that people have more, that some people have more. That, that's fine. As long as everyone has what they need to live comfortably, not just to survive, but to be comfortable in their life and to be content and not have to worry about are they going to be able to pay for their children to go to, to school. Um, this, the We could talk about the cost of higher education in the United States, which is just right. criminal. It's just absolutely criminal. Yes, People are paying social, social security payments are going to pay off their student loans. That's, that's how long they, they carry these things. Uh, and that, that is just totally wrong. People should be able to, uh, everyone should be able to 
have a comfortable place to live, uh, to have transportation, whether it's public or private transportation. They should be able to know that, to, to not have any concern about having enough food, about uh, their children's safety in schools. That's another topic. Uh, about their, their children being able to go to whatever level of education they want without bankrupting the family or putting themselves mm -hmm. in debt for, for generations. No one is better than anybody else. So mm -hmm. uh, there needs to be a basic level of, of needs met. And then if some people have a little bit more, fine. I, I don't sure. know about that. But when they have so much more and so many people are doing without, um, we've heard about, is it, uh, I forget who it is, who's building a, a huge yacht somewhere in Europe and it cost millions and millions of dollars and there was talk about moving a bridge to get it. Probably um, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos exactly, it. exactly, right. This yeah. is just this is just the height of Disgusting. immorality, if you ask me. Yes, it's just it totally, is. totally immoral. Uh, how many people could he feed with that? With what he's spending at the that yacht? When you think about the U.S. military budget and and the billions of dollars are being sent to Ukraine right now, when people in many areas of the United States can't drink the water that comes out of their tap. Damn when, right. And again, we talk about the schools that are in such awful conditions in many places. So this is just wrong. So yes, it is. meet, meet yeah. the needs of the people, meet the needs of people. And then you want to buy a big house, go ahead and buy a big house, you know, uh, <laughs> but exactly. Yeah. You know, so that's, I, I, I would call that a very human philosophy. You know, I, I, think, sort of I like think that's all it is. When you mentioned Jeff Bezos, by the way, I would be a lot less negative about Jeff Bezos if he made that money selling books, which was the original purpose of Amazon. But mm -hmm. but let it be said that in in the past few years, actually, ironically, around the time of 2019 and 2020, Amazon really morphed itself into a massive war profiteer. Mm -hmm. And they were not a war profiteer 10 years ago. And they are a, a war profiteer to the tune of $10 billion or, or so now. And that's what's building Jeff Bezos's yacht. So absolutely disgusting. I love books. And that's you oh, know yeah. sort of a segue to this question. I, I'm looking at your bookshelf. You know, when, when we record these podcasts, we're recording online. You're, you're in Canada. We see each other, even though we only record audio. And I see your bookshelves. Not surprised. Many peace activists have bookshelves. <laughs> um, what are some of the books, music, um, movies, you know, what are some of the influences that led you to discover your inner humanity and become a peace activist? Oh, there's one book called Tell Me No Lies that my son gave me several years ago for uh, Christmas. It's investigative journalism that changed the world, uh, by, edited by John Pilger. Uh, Never heard of. Yeah, it's, it's a, a really good, good book. Wow. And very powerful. And that was one that, as I skim through it now, I see lots of highlights, you know, highlighting, and I used as as part of my research. Uh, people like you, you mentioned Gandhi, who was who was simply peaceful. Uh, yes, I guess it was it was I I can't name any um, major uh, major figures because it was a lot of little things, a lot of little people, uh, not little people, little known people that I met. Mm -hmm. uh, who whose example was just one of uh, tolerance and acceptance and and love and humanity, and seeing those examples of people just in their day to day lives, and then seeing what the governments of the world were doing just made me think I want to be like these other people. You know, I don't want to yeah. be like the government. And so uh, I started I started doing research and I read so so many books. Uh, here I'm looking at um, many by certainly more recently by David Swanson, but there were, mm -hmm. there were, were many books that just led me to realize, yeah, I'm I'm on the right track, and and yes. by, by getting off by getting off the track I was raised in, I'm moving to the right track. Wow. Well, you mentioned David Swanson, who who is somebody you and I also work with often mm -hmm. at World Beyond War. One of the founders, by the way, were you one of you? You have been a, around longer than me. Were you around when World Beyond War was founded? No, I was. I came in probably within the first year. I, I was an early member, but I, I wasn't one of the founders. 
Um, what has what what role does World Beyond War play in your life and in your work? World Beyond War is a is a tremendous influence. The the people who are involved in World Beyond War, we, we go to board meetings. I'm in awe at their knowledge and their commitment. They they are you know I, I learn from them so much. This the, the organization is 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 created to to end war in the world, of course, and the concrete and specific steps that they take, like you and I are members of the No Basis campaign. So yes. we work to to eliminate uh, especially military US military bases, bases around yeah. the world and so on. And these are these are things World Beyond War provides uh, a mechanism for all of us, whether we're board members or whether we're simply or not not really involved at all. It involves it provides a way for us to take concrete specific action uh, to to join groups. They're members around the world, and they are on our mailing lists, and they receive information about what steps they can do, contacting members of their their governments regarding something that's going on in their country or something that's going on globally. So it's a it's a very influential and very important organization for the world. I'm glad to see the growth that it's experienced over the years. It continues to grow. Someone I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, the young man from Palestine who's now in India, he's applied for a job and used me as a reference. So I, I wrote the reference to the person who, and I, she said, what context did he work for you in? And I, I told, said, World Beyond War. And I, I put the link to it and said what he'd mm-hmm. done for us. And she wrote back and said, thanks for the reference. That looks like a very interesting organization. So she, yeah. she wasn't aware of World Beyond War, but it's just... When people do hear of it, that it it resonates with them, because yes. no one likes war. A lot of people in the United States, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not there anymore, but you are, uh, see U.S. fostered wars as uh, bringing about justice to somebody or resolving some injustice. These are, of course, complete lies. But yes. uh, generally speaking, people don't like the idea of war, but think it's a necessary evil. Uh, World Beyond War teaches clearly and shows evidence that it is that is there's nothing necessary about war. Let's get to the last big question, and these are all big questions, and this one is no smaller. You and I both work hard on this. And actually, before I get to the big question, I want to mention um, you and I are working on the No Bases Project, um, and um, U.S. military bases are, in a way, a form of colonialism, aren't they? They definitely um, are. Yeah, why do we call them bases instead of colonies? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. But I think it's uh, it's semantics. Bases, uh, a military base. We've been told, we've been taught, uh, these are manned by heroic men and women who are yes. who are there to protect democracy around the world, and so on, so on, so on. All lies, of course. Um, yes, colonizing does still have a negative connotation, as it definitely should but these are forms of colonization because these these countries know that if they step out of line that there's this one or multiple bases around them that's going to to bring them back into line their governments are constrained in what they do because they have these agreements with the united states and they have uh they have to be careful because this military foreign military presence is within the, within their borders. U.S. military bases, the contracts they have with the countries grant impunity to the personnel on the bases for any crimes they might commit. So again, we're seeing the model that's used by Israel and India to grant impunity to their soldiers being used by the United States. Yes. I mean, it's not settler colonialism. It's military colonialism. It, yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it certainly should be illegal um, it should to grab land. Mm-hmm. It it is occupation of land it, with that definitely. used to belong to human beings and is now yeah. It, I mean, I'm, it, World Beyond War has been working with people in Montenegro um, mm-hmm. to stop a new military base mm-hmm. being built. In. Actually, Bob, you and I will do another episode about this when we launch our next version of the ba- No Bases project. Good, but I am going to suggest we start calling them military colonies because the word base is too good for them. I mean, base base almost has a positive connotation. Mm-hmm. Like my base, this is where I stand. Right. I, I right. don't think these are bases. I think these are these mm-hmm. are invasions. Yeah. Um, but military colonies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
<sighs> okay, so that was a diversion from the big question that I would like to close with. Um, you and I both give a lot of our time and our emotional investment to the anti-war movement. It's mostly volunteer work. I mean, we, we certainly could be using our time more profitably somewhere else, but for our souls, this is profitable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, where are we going with this? Are we succeeding in ending war in in September 2022, we've just been through a hell of a discouraging year mm -hmm. because there is a war raging in Ukraine that is, to me, a, a powder keg, a potential nuclear, mm -hmm. you know, end of the world. And this was not true a year ago. What are we, you and I, and all the folks at World Beyond War, and everybody in the world in the world's various anti-war <laughs> movements? What are we doing? Are we are we getting anywhere? That that is a very good question. I think we are. I think we are progressing. And certainly, there's the idea of three steps forward and, and two steps back, and we've certainly yes. taken some steps back with this. Um, Russia and Ukraine. That the situation there is very complex and very difficult. Should there's there's no reason ever for war, uh, and this this is a, one of the many. Every war is an example of why there's no reason no no reason for war. But we are doing. We are making progress in a, f a few ways. One, I think we are informing the world slowly that indeed there is no reason for war, that there are other ways, other forms of resistance. There's certainly diplomacy. There are other things that can be done. Uh, and war is, war is not the solution. That war will only bring more destruction. It will only postpone the resolving of the issues that have led some country to start a war so that it's not it's not solving the problem it's just delaying it and certainly worsening it because of all the death and destruction that the war brings so that that's one thing that we're doing is informing people i think we're also influencing beginning to influence governments in thinking that there are other ways that diplomacy can work uh if it's done uh if if it's if the united states right. never interested in diplomacy it's certainly not in Ukraine today. It's not. Uh, no. no, not yeah. at all. Not at all. Yeah. I want to know, I want to be able to say when I die, I did all I could. That yes. I, uh, regardless of whether I succeed or not, that, and whether a person believes that there's a God or not, if they meet their maker or just on their deathbed to say, yeah, I, I, I did what I could for the world. You know, to, to make it a better place, and that's I think that's that can't be minimized. That's yeah. That's our individual dignity, uh, our individual integrity. So there are two levels. There's the kind of the global level of are we making advances, and I think we're see we see this also in in this I mentioned before in the situation with um, Israel and Palestine when uh, a year and a half ago Israel was bombing and people around the world, not the governments, but the people. Uh, took to the streets in support of yes. the Palestinians. So that's because uh, so many pro-Palestinian organizations have for so many years been publicizing the the suffering of the people of Palestine and letting the rest of the world know their needs. So a lot of people who aren't going to go out uh, or aren't going to join organizations, they're not going to be on boards and so on. But when they hear about these awful injustices, they will do something. So World Beyond War is doing that. It's informing people so that when there is something coming up, so maybe it's someone who, who never writes a letter to their to the editor or to their representative, uh, but they're kind of aware of what's going on. And then something major happens. They say, now I've got to do something. And they'll, they'll march in demonstration or take some action. Then they'll go home and just go about their life again. World Beyond War is informing people and helping people to reach that point where when something happens, even they don't think about it in advance, they don't think, well, when something happens, I'll do this. But when something actually does happen, they say, let me let me go out to the street. There's a demonstration I just read about. I'm going to go. And then that's that, I think, is one of the major importances of World Beyond War in informing people so that they can then inform their governments. Yeah. You're way of thinking about this is rather similar to mine. I think I, I agree. I mean, but surprise. It, we're, we're hoping to help the world. But we can only do what we know is right, mm -hmm. whether, whether we are confident that we're helping or not. I do still have hope, um, oh, even though it's been a discouraging year. Do, you do too? What shreds of hope 
can can keep us going at well, this moment? There are a few things. One, while the U.S. is sending billions of dollars aid to Ukraine, which is wrong, uh, the U.S. hasn't sent ground troops. That's something. And the U.S. is usually ready to go to war anywhere. Uh, the U.S. is threatening war against Iran, but has not acted on that yet. Uh, so right. that, that that's good. I think there's a general attitude that is constraining the U.S.'s use of military might to just do whatever it wants to do. I'm not sure that would be the case if Donald Trump were still president. He was so erratic and so irrational. Uh, not that Joe Biden is a statesman by any means. Um, yeah. And I, I I vote socialist now. I'm still a U.S. citizen. I have dual citizenship. And I vote for a socialist party candidate. Uh, but we're seeing Joe Biden's been president for two years and hasn't started any wars yet. He's he's, he's supporting is he supporting the war against uh, the people of Yemen. He's supporting terrorists in Syria. He's supporting uh, certainly the uh, Ukrainians in that war. Um, but he hasn't sent ground troops. And that's that's a small victory. Well, I always like to end on a note of hope, but I, ha I have to dampen this one by saying that I agree that Biden's record is mixed. I, I see him as a weak president, um, and I, I can't help comparing him to Lyndon B. Johnson, who um, was dragged into the Vietnam War. He wanted to be a domestic policy mm -hmm. president. Mm -hmm. He wanted his legacy to be civil rights and ending poverty. Unfortunately, during his presidency, um, the, the, the crisis, the so-called crisis in Vietnam, which was created by colonizers, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. the French and then the Americans, took over his presidency and actually forced him to curtail his presidency because it was such a disaster. And I believe that just like the United States disastrous entry into Vietnam, just like United States disastrous many decades involvement in Iraq, I believe that we are slowly getting worse. We are slowly moving towards complete war. So I yeah. believe that Biden will not, if, if the trajectory stays the same, I don't think Biden is strong enough, even mm -hmm. though he did pull us out of Afghanistan. To me, that showed that he understands. Mm -hmm. He understands the messages we deliver at World Beyond War, mm -hmm. that war is always harmful, but he's not strong enough. And I don't, I'm not talking about his personality. I'm not talking about his character. I'm mm -hmm. talking about his, his role in government. He, he is not as strong as, as McDonnell Douglas and Raytheon and Grumman and, yes. um, and Exxon. You know, obviously, fossil fuels are a big part of this. I hope you're right. I, w I would like to to end by nodding to what you you said about we have to do what we know is right. We can only go forward and keep right. keeping forward. And, yeah. and we look for those three steps forward despite the two steps back. Yes. You know, it's funny, Bob, that that um, has that phrase has been used on this podcast before. And the last time it was, I actually put in the Bruce, uh, a moment of the Bruce Springsteen song, one step up and two steps back oh. <laughs> um, in the podcast. That was about 20 episodes ago. So I guess that's a, a one, or three steps forward, two steps back, or one step forward, two steps back, yeah. whichever way it is, that yeah. is what it's like to be in the anti-war movement. Mm -hmm. And sometimes um, it's both. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what it means is that we're due for a couple of big steps forward without any steps back. So let's make that, that happen. Let's hope for that. Yes. <laughs> well, I really, really value this conversation, Bob. And I, I do you. know more about you than I knew before. You're a very hardworking and serious member of World Beyond War. We're always so busy talking about this topic or that topic that we rarely get a chance to say, hey, who are you? You know, right. <laughs> how did you True, get true. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, it, it meant a lot. And, I, and um, I think you have a lot to say and a lot to offer. So I hope people will check out your book and your Thank other you. books. Um, and I'll see you again, Bob. Thank you for being here. Very good. Thank you.
Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.